Hosea chapter 9. Before we went to break, I read to you verses 11 through 14, which warned Israel that the judgment God would bring on them would not only affect them, but would also affect their children. And it mentions God judging childbirth, conception, gestation, and living children with his judgment. Let's read them again, verses 11 through 14. The lesson being, you are not merely being righteous for yourself. You are also being righteous for your family as well. Hosea 9.11 As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord. What wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Now we've got mammary glands dried up so the women cannot give suck to their children. We've got miscarriages from the womb. We've got difficulty conceiving. Children being stillborn. And, and children dying in the womb, and children that make it through all those stages of the fir- first part of life, being turned over to a murderer, being the Assyrian. This is the judgment of the God of heaven. He kills babies. Right. Babies didn't last any longer in the floodwaters of Noah's day than did the old retirees from the senior citizen's home. David's little love child by Bathsheba died in God's judgment. God gives children and God can take away children. And if you have a sympathetic heart that doesn't understand both sides of that, you're a fool. You can't make a child if you wanted to. God makes children, God gives children, and God takes away children. And God judges families when their fathers are fools. And God judges families when their fathers are worldly and carnal and do not love the Lord like they should. And so the lesson here is, you're not merely being righteous for yourself. You're being righteous for your family. A righteous man, God is going to bless his seed. God is going to bless his children and his children's children. It's taught in the Bible. That's the positive side. That's Psalm 119. That's Isaiah 58. That's other places that say God will bless the children of the righteous. But this warning is, because you've been so bad, Israel, you're going to cost your descendants their lives. I'm going to ruin your family tree. I'm going to work on women's breasts that they can't nurse their babies. I'm going to work on the wombs that they can't carry children. You're not going to be able to conceive, and the ones you do give birth to and celebrate are going to be dashed to pieces in the streets by the Assyrians. That all because you do not want to humble yourself before me and return me the benefit that I have given you. This is the word of the Lord. God's judgment extends to unrepentant children of Israel's rebels at all stages of life. Your choices every day affect your children. Yours is unborn right now, Adam. Your choices every day affect that little girl. You're not the only one. Everyone else in here, 
Our choices every day affect our children. Big hypocrites beget little hypocrites. Big carnally minded Christians beget little carnally minded Christians. You ruin your family if you're a carnally minded Christian. It's going to go to the four winds. It's not going to please God or men. Your family name will be a laughing stock. This is the word of the Lord. This is the Lord's people. This was not the Philistines and the Egyptians. This was the Lord's people in verses 11 through 14. Let's come to 15 in this ninth chapter. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Gilgal was the first camp that Israel made when they crossed the Jordan River and came into the land of Canaan. And Gilgal, so Gilgal was the beginning of their nation. But Gilgal was the place they went where they called Samuel to meet with them. And here's the message they had for Samuel in 1 Samuel, around chapter 8. Samuel, thank you for being our judge, but we don't really like you, so we want a king. And Samuel went to the Lord and said, Lord, I know you don't want this to happen. They've rejected me. And the Lord said to Samuel, don't worry. They've not only rejected you, they've rejected me. And so the Lord, through his prophet, hundreds of years later, remember, he remembers all wickedness. He is going back hundreds of years to what took place at Gilgal, and he's calling them revolters. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them because they rejected me. They wanted a king so that they could look like the nations. Instead of a judge, do you know that judges are quite a bit cheaper than kings? You know, a, a judge kept his farm, lived in the farm. Whenever there was something to settle, they'd send to the judge and he'd settle it. Boy, as soon as the king, he wants a standing army. Do you know why kings want standing armies? So they can count pretty medals on little boys that line up for them. See, men won't do it. They line up all the little men with all, their, all the little boys, I mean, with their shiny medals. They march them down the street. They all click their heels. They salute in whatever way you salute. And so kings have standing armies. Kings make palaces. Kings multiply women by having a harem. Kings tax. Kings do build forts. Kings do things to their own honor and glory. They, revol- they revolted. They didn't want Samuel as a judge. They wanted a king so they could look like the nations. And God brings it back. And the point we want right here is the Lord remembered this wickedness for hundreds of years and brought it back up in their face because it was in his face. For there I hated them. Now that's pretty strong language. You think I'm harsh? This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Hosea. For there I hated them. Their attitude I hated. Their words I hated. Their choice I hated. I hated their rebellion against me, wanting to look like the nation after I had given them so much. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. And so he took the ten tribes captive by the Assyrians. This is Hosea 9.15. To a wise man, remember the last verse is going to say, Who is wise? He will understand these things. Who is prudent? He will know them. That the ways of the Lord are right. And that is right. When they had a free judge, and God was their king, and they were blessed abundantly, why would you want to change that? Unless you're a rebel. So we come to chapter 10. 
Let's make good time, but don't, let's not hurry. Let's lay hold of these lessons. Don't rebel against the Lord's authority in your life. If the Lord's given you a husband, or if the Lord's given you a father, or if the Lord's given you a master, or if the Lord's given you a pastor, or if the Lord's given you um, a king, or a president, or a governor, or a mayor, a policeman, or whatever authority he's put in your life, a teacher, assigned by the state to teach you, if that's where you're going to school, or assigned by a school, or assigned by your father, and it's your mother, whatever the role is, submit to it. Because when you rebel against God-given authority, guess who you're rebelling against? God Himself. Romans chapter 13. They that resist the ordinance resist the ordinance of God. Amen. When you resist any authority. And the Lord remembers it. Chapter 10. Verse 2. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. Their heart is divided. They like to talk about the Lord, but they were serving Baal and other gods. Do you remember Elijah's word to these people? He was in Samaria. Elijah didn't testify to Judah. Elijah was where Ahab was king. Israel, the ten tribes. How long halt ye between two opinions? Remember that, Jerry? How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord is God, meaning the Lord Jehovah, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. But don't halt in the middle and pretend that you're serving both. Don't try to serve Jehovah God, and yet you're serving Baal. The Lord wants our whole hearts. How long halt you between two opinions? To the same people, a few generations earlier, Elijah had spoken those words. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And so the word here is, the lesson we want, their heart is divided. If you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. Because God will not allow you to be his friend and the friend of the world. You can't be both. If you're the friend of God, you're the enemy of the world. If you're the friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. It's a dichotomy. It's a paradox. You can't do them both. They don't mix. It's oil and water. And it's your choice every single day. Are you more like the world or are you more like a man walking with God? And as you walk that balance, I mean, it's not a balance. If you, as you walk in between those two points, you choose for yourself what kind of wind you're investing in. And if you choose the friendship of the world, you're going to reap a whirlwind. And it's going to blow you and yours away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's not have divided hearts. A, a, a double-minded man is unstable. In all his ways. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye ye double-minded. Get them pure so that you have one motive. Let the eye be single, Matthew chapter 6, meaning good and looking on one object. This is the lesson of Hosea 10.2. You must constantly examine and unite your heart to only have one holy passion. There's one thing you will never sacrifice, and that's the love of God and walking in His commandments. Other things you will let go for that one, if they ever come in conflict with each other. Let's come to verse 12. It was mentioned last Sunday. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity. 
And it goes on to describe the consequences of their choices. But the choice here is, sow to yourselves in righteousness. When you sow righteousness, God's going to give you a harvest of mercy. His mercy will provide everything you need and want in your life. His mercy will provide you peace in your soul. His mercy will provide you a husband or a wife. His mercy will provide you everything you need. If you want God's mercy in your life, that means just giving you things that you don't earn, giving you things that you don't deserve, then sow righteousness. Live a righteous life and the Lord will give. You want everything to work when you conceive a baby? You want conception to work? Gestation? Delivery? Lactation? Hey, those of you that are taking medical courses, daddy ain't quite so dumb, is he? Um, All those things work when the Lord blesses them. And if you sow righteousness, you'll reap mercy. You know, you can't make conception happen. You can't keep gestation. You can't bring to the birth and make it work. You can't put life into that child that's at conception. And you can't cause it to breathe at birth. You can't lactate on a choice of your own will. Because we just had that warning that God was going to take those things away. When you sow righteousness, you reap mercy. I, I don't care what mercy you want in your life. If you want mercy on your job or if you want mercy on an investment, sow righteousness and you'll reap mercy. Let that lesson sink into our souls. Your choices every day, your choices in life are your investments to bring God's reward. And His reward is either going to be His mercy in your life or it's going to be His judgment in your life. Break up your fallow ground. Come on, break those clods up. Make soil ready for the seed, the seed of God's Word, and the seed of the Holy Spirit, so that it can bear fruit in your life. This is Hosea to Israel telling them to repent and change their attitude and to take on a tender heart that would be tender toward God's Word and to sow some righteousness, they would reap some mercy, and guess what? The armies of Assyria would withdraw. But they didn't repent. And He didn't come and rain righteousness upon you as He would have. When God rains righteousness upon you and there's a metonym, the cause is put for the effect. All the blessings of righteousness that come along with righteousness, God rains it. Rains it upon you. When it rains, it pours. When you sow righteousness, you reap mercy. Let it sink into you. This is the word of the Lord to us. This is our Father in heaven having a chat with us beside the fireplace as he pulled off one of his 66 books out of his library. And the book is called Hosea. And we were just in chapter 12, 10, and verse 12 of that chapter told us, he told us, Listen, son, daughter, if you'll sow righteousness, you'll reap mercy. All those bad things that I just said in chapter 9, I won't do to you. I'll do good things to you. This is the word of the Lord. I set before you this day life and death, mercy or judgment. Chapter 11, verse 9. Verse 8 is the one I just told you that matched up with the song we just sang. If you see the last clause of it, my repentings are kindled together. The Lord had repentings in his heart that were causing a fire in his bosom that he wanted to show mercy toward Israel if they would just give him a chance. Look at, him, look at his questions, his rhetorical questions in verse 8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Do you know how hard this is? 
You rebelling against me and forcing me to bring Assyria in here and wipe you out? How shall I give you up? What a father. This is the holy God of heaven. But he writes sometimes in language like this so that we can know that we can go to him and find a tender father. This is an Abba father that if you'll repent, he is quick to forgive. Look at him. Look look at the struggle that he, he expresses in human words for us to relate to a little bit. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I'm not going to do it in proportion to what I really should. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. I will not wipe out every single one of them. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. He did not kill every one. He scattered them abroad, and there came a day when there was a highway made back to Jerusalem in which the gospel brought back the twelve tribes. I've already mentioned the passage, James chapter 1, that the Lord would have mercy and not wipe them out like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two little towns mentioned there in verse 8, those are two little town villages of the cities of the plain. See, when God burned up Sodom and Gomorrah, there were some other cities around them that thought that they would legislate that it was okay to, to have for same-sex marriages as well, and God burned them up. And they're mentioned here that he wasn't going to be like that toward them. Does the Bible say, we have not received according to our iniquities? That's what he's saying right there in 11.9. Verse 12 of chapter 11. Ephraim compasseth me about with lies. They've circled me around with all their lying. And the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. Look at that distinction right there. What's the lesson we can get from that verse? God makes distinctions. God discriminates between the righteous and the wicked in a family, in a marriage, in a church, in a nation. God distinguishes and separates and and discriminates. Notice him here. He's judging Israel. Called Ephraim in chapter... Chapter 11, verse 12, the first half. Ephraim compasseth me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. They were hypocrites, liars. They would pretend and mouth things about the Lord God of heaven, and then they would worship Baal, and they would commit adultery. Yet the second half of the verse, But Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. Because what kind of kings did they have? The good king Hezekiah, calling for a Passover, the likes of which Judah hadn't had in many years. And so there's a distinction. And the lesson we want to take from this verse, no matter what others are doing around you, do not compromise to their level. That is not how we measure our righteousness, that we're equal to or a little bit better than our neighbors around us, either in the church or in a family. I had a big family. I have seven children. Those seven children shouldn't measure themselves among themselves and by themselves, because to do so is to be foolish. Because who cares what your brothers and sisters are doing? Why don't you measure yourself by the standard of God's Word? And everyone in a church ought to do that. You Jones children, don't you measure yourself just because you might be better than a brother or a sister. Be the best there is. Daniel, measure yourself by Daniel in the Bible. Yeah. Michael, measure yourself by Michael the archangel. Yeah. Try that on for size. He's called a holy angel. David? Hey, David, David Jones, measure yourself by the David of the Bible. You be a David like the David in the Bible. 
You know how we do it. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 10, about verses 12 through 15 says that there were teachers at Corinth that were measuring them, themselves among themselves and by themselves. And Paul called them all fools. We don't want to do that. Your measure should be the standard of God's word and God's word only. It doesn't matter what others are. You know what we're living in? We're living in the time of compromise of Christians. We don't want to be like them. Let them compromise with each other. Let them water down the gospel until it's palatable for God-hating rebels. Listen, they'll go for the light show in a praise band. Are you kidding? Of course they will. They can come in there and flip-flops in a tank top. They don't have to bring a Bible because the church doesn't even have a Bible. There's a bunch of rock and roll music going on in the light show. No one makes them accountable for anything. There's no standard of righteousness preached. We don't water ourselves down to that. we got to stick to the standard of God's Word. And that's the lesson of that verse. Verse 12 of chapter 11. But Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. Judah was still being faithful because the good king Hezekiah was making sure they were faithful. Let's come to chapter 12, verse 3. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel. And there he spake with us, even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. What do these verses mean? Brother Crosby, what do these verses mean? He took him by the heel in the womb. Jacob grabbed a hold of Esau's heel in the womb. You say, what is that supposed to tell me? Esau came out first. And Jacob was behind him, seeing his heel. And his hand was on his heel. Because Jacob came out second. But the lesson is, which one did God love? God loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's the first lesson in verse 3. By his strength he had power with God. Where did Jacob show his strength and power with God? Remember Jonathan? Jonathan was a wrestler in high school. Jacob wrestled with the angel. Jacob wrestled with God and defeated him. And his name was changed to Israel. Because as a wrestler, you have power with God and you're a prince. What is the the prophet doing here? He's quickly remembering some great big benefits that were given to those people. And they are not living up to them. Look at what I did to your father. I took your father who was second from the womb and gave him the birthright. I took your father and gave him strength with the angel so that he defeated his brother Esau with 400 men that came with him. I visited him at Bethel. He saw me and talked with me. I had angels running up and down a ladder with him. The second time he came to Bethel, I met with him again after 20 years with his father-in-law. All these things are listed in order to get their attention. Look at what I've done. Isaiah 5 would put it this way. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I didn't do? And brethren, what has he done for you? We owe him everything. Look what he's done. Do you have a list? I have a list. I don't want to take the time to start through my laundry list of all the good things he's done for me. Two of them are sitting in the front row. Aren't they? And you all know that. 
Almost. They would be, but Mark won't let them. They're in the second row. They're in the second row. Lots of things the Lord has done. And we, we better remember them. Why do we have any interest in the things of the Lord? There was a time in my life when I didn't. Why do I have any interest? Because the Lord's put it there. The Lord took care of me. The Lord's done things for me that I consider equal to what he did for Jacob. I mean, listen, let me tell you something. Jacob's life stunk compared to mine. You want me to help you with that? Did he have domestic tranquility? Did Jacob have domestic tranquility when he's got wives negotiating and bargaining over him and kids killing each other, wanting to kill each other and sleeping with his wives and trying to sell each other into slave? Do you remember? I, I, I've been blessed a whole lot more than Jacob. Haven't you? Amen. Don't compare yourself to Jacob. That's what it's there for. That's the lesson. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. That whole, the, and you're supposed to immediately remember, that's right. That's right. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second. But God made Jacob the child of promise. That's right. And that's right. That Jacob wrestled with the angel and had his name changed to Israel. That's right. He went to Bethel and he met with God. That's right. How could they do this? How can you do it against God sending his son to die on the cross for you, giving you his word, giving you Christian parents, giving you this church, giving you health and strength, letting you be born in America in the 21st century you're living? The Lord has been so kind to you. Are you repaying him the benefit? Is the argument here in chapter 12. In one short, in, in 15 seconds, let me say verse 10. I have also spoken of the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Whenever you read Schofield, Darby, or any of those men on Bible prophecy, they will say that prophecy must be taken literally. And that's their whole hermeneutic about interpreting the Bible in prophecy. And yet the Bible says, when it talks about how the prophets wrote... They used similitudes. That means you do not take them literally. They are using metaphorical language. And right there is your salvation from C.I. Schofield and the rest of those. Listen, those guys are so simple. They flip open the Bible and it says that a lion shall lie down with the lamb. Do you know what they do? They go call the zoo and tell them that there's a day coming that Jesus is going to take away the lion cage. I'm serious. They make little Bible story books and show a lion with its head resting on a little lamb lamb. Do you know what that text is really saying in Isaiah chapter 11? It's a metaphor about this church. That the Lord, that the Lord's put lions and lambs in here and changed our hearts just enough that we can survive one more week. Because by His grace He's done that. I love that. That tenth verse is very important to Bible hermeneutics. If you want to understand how to interpret the Bible, this is one of the principal rules right here. We do not interpret prophecy literally. When you go read Isaiah 13, it's now way over 15 seconds, but when you go read Isaiah 13, and it describes God sending Babylon against Israel, and then God sending the Medes and the Persians to judge Babylon, it used all sorts of cataclysmic language to describe what was going to happen politically in the world. Nothing was to be understood literally. The, hev- the, 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 the moon was not going to disappear. The sun was not going to stop shining. The earth was not going to run out of its place. Metaphorical language, they take it literally, you know what? And so what they, you know, here's what they say. Isaiah 13 hasn't happened yet. How do you know? Because the moon's still shining. Oh, you've got to be kidding. Is there anything up there? 
anything. Isaiah 13 says by name, the Medes and the Persians will come and defeat the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. It happened 2,500 years ago. The prophets used similitudes. 13, verse 6. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Oh, what a great lesson here. What was their pasture? Wells dug, vineyards planted and grown, houses full of goodly things, walled up cities. They had a pa- they had the land flowing with milk and honey. According to their pasture, so were they filled. Were they filled with milk and honey? Did they wax fat? Is there an expression in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, I believe, that says, Jeshu run waxed fat and kicked. Rebellion came from prosperity. So the warning from this verse is, prosperity generally leads to problems, not to godliness. And so you want to be very careful about it. No wonder the prophet Agur in Proverbs chapter 30 prayed for meat convenient for me. Don't make me rich. Don't make me poor. Just give me enough in the middle. According to their pastures, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. They got all puffed up because they were, they were living the good life. They were living the high life, as Miller wants you to know. Therefore have they forgotten me. Therefore have they forgotten me. Therefore. Because they were living the good life and they got exalted about it. We can never let our lifestyle and God's blessings upon us alter our heart's attitude toward it. We had nothing. We'll have nothing when we leave. And the only reason we have something is because God gave it and God can take it away whenever He wishes. And God is the end of it all anyway. And to give God all the glory. Or we're in trouble. 13.6 Fear prosperity more than poverty. Poverty usually can help you to Christ. Prosperity doesn't. It often leads to pride and rebellion. Do you know what the sins of Sodom were? Ezekiel 16.49 Do you know the three sins of Sodom? And And one of them isn't sodomy. Do you know what they are? Why God overthrew Sodom? It's why He's going to overthrow America. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness in her daughters. Lazy little girls that think taking a couple credits in school is work. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness in her daughters, Ezekiel 16.49, is why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and why He was going to judge Israel and Judah, and that's why it's in the book of Ezekiel, not the book of Genesis. It's a warning about prosperity. And so I I bring that up and remind you of it from this verse here, verse 6. According to their pastures, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Let's not ever let prosperity cause us to forget God. He is the end of our lives. Not the things and stuff He gives us. They're means to an end. And that's to glorify God and to help others. Give away what you've got. Cast your bread upon the waters. If you really want to succeed. Remember those first six verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 11? While you're viewing the clouds and it looks like economic storm clouds are coming on our nation, cast your bread upon the waters. 
Don't withhold because you see storm clouds. We, I preached this already. Cast. Eat. Sit down and eat with your family. And give a portion to seven. Yeah, give a portion to eight. What does the Lord say? How do you know that they're both not going to be successful? Go out, go to work in the morning and give it away at night. You say, but then I'm not taking care of tomorrow. The Lord will take care of tomorrow. Cast your bread upon the waters. For after many days it will come back. I love the great things of God's law. R.G. Letourneau said, The Lord shovels it out to me and I shovel it back as fast as I can. But the Lord's got a bigger shovel. Verse 16 of this 13th chapter. Why don't we start at 15 so that you can know he's talking about the Assyrians. Can you visualize a globe in your mind? Do you remember geography at all? Can you visualize a globe? There's this long Mediterranean Sea. And at the eastern end of it is the nation of Israel. And east of them is what we would call Iraq and Iran today. But it was Assyria then. So when it refers to the east, and it does several times in the book of Hosea, you should understand it's referring to Assyria. Egypt isn't to the east. Egypt was to the west. Verse 15. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, and Ephraim was, an east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. This is the word of the Lord. And if men don't like this kind of preaching, and if they don't like this kind of scripture, and if they don't like this kind of a warning, then they don't like the God of heaven. The God of heaven designed conception, gestation, pregnancy, and birth. And the Lord of heaven can do whatever he wants with it when those rebels rebel against him and his word. And this is what he promised. And there were women that would hear this and there were men that were heard, that heard this, but they did not repent to save their nation. And the ten tribes were cast abroad throughout the earth by the dispersion of the Assyrian Empire and they were never gathered together again as a nation. Judah was gathered together again, but never these people. Only in the gospel were the twelve tribes united in little churches throughout the Roman Empire. Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. And bre- Are you rebelling against God in any way in your life? Any way in your life you're rebelling against your parent? Spouse? The Word of God? Anywhere in your life? You have no idea how bad your life can get. True. Is what this text is teaching us. We're n- we don't have the Assyrians at our door right now. They're not going to come in with a pitchfork... And take out our pregnant women. But you know what? The Lord's hand is not shortened. That it cannot judge in the year 2009. He can tear you up from the inside out. That could make getting ripped up by a pitchfork an act of mercy. Because he can leave you alive with a child that breaks your heart. Day after day. Week. Month. Year after year. Or with a hopeless, helpless, loveless marriage. What's the lesson of 1316? You have no idea how terrible your life can become for sinning against God. So we come to chapter 14. Let's finish with chapter 14 in a high note. I hope you've heard the warnings. But there's a high note. 
Oh, after hearing that verse, would you like this verse? O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. That I would even be saying things like this to you is because of your own iniquity, Hosea says. And the Lord says to them, take with you words. Let's get this settled right now. Let's get it over with. Let's blot chapter 13 out of our lives that it cannot happen. And there's only one way. You can't associate yourself. You can't hand join in hand get rid of it. You can't give him lip service and get rid of it. You can't pretend he doesn't see it and get rid of it. There's only one way to get rid of chapter 13, and it's terrifying prophecy. Repent. Repent. And that means to hate your sins and to change your way of living. How do you do it? Take with you words. The Lord will accept verbal repentance. With a changed life, of course. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. There's the changed life. Confess your sin and turn to the Lord. Say unto Him, take away all iniquity. Forgive me all my sins is the translation. You should be able to understand that. And receive us graciously. This is translated perfectly in the New Testament this way. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's verse 2. That man went down to his house justified. Jesus said, Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Forgive us, receive us, and we'll praise your holy name. That's not very long. That's not very complicated. That's not deep at all. We can all understand that. You want to save yourself from chapter 13? The Lord can do chapter 13 in so many ways. He can take away all your hope in life and leave you miserable. So that you die a thousand deaths. Physical death would be a mercy. If you don't want to do it His way. How do you get rid of chapter 13? And I mean that respectfully and I hope no one here is worried that I'm talking about getting rid of the Bible. I mean, how can you blot out chapter 13 so that it doesn't apply to you? Repent. And how do you repent? He tells us perfectly. Take with you words. The Lord will accept words. That's how we all start with someone repenting to us. Turn to the Lord. That's the changed life. Say unto him, take away all iniquity. Take away all that we've done wrong and forgive us. Receive us graciously. Because it's only grace that can receive us, because we certainly haven't earned it. We have earned your judgment. So receive us graciously. So, if you do that, we will render the calves of our lips. We will praise your name. And here's the confession going further. The Lord loves you to get specific. I mean, do you get real specific with the Lord? I mean, real specific. Do you tell Him about your lust? Do you tell Him about the things you think? The things you've said? Do you tell Him the words? The Lord wants you to be specific. Do you tell Him about the weakness of your flesh? Do you tell him that you hate your own sinfulness? You wish it would never crop up? He wants you to be specific on how you sinned against him. And so here, the prophet helps them out in this third verse. Asher shall not save us. This prayer of confession is, Lord, forgive us for being idolaters. Forgive us for looking anywhere else for help. Forgive us all our sins. Receive us graciously. Because Assyria can't help us. We will not ride upon horses. We're not going to buy horses out of Egypt or from the Assyrians. We're not going to trust in a cavalry. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. We are through with idolatry. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. 
There's no piece of stone that can help a fatherless. The The Lord always appealed to the fatherless because an orphan without a father is the most helpless person. They need help. And the God of heaven is always their helper. And so they appeal to that fact right here in this verse. We will not trust in idols anymore. This is a good confession. This is a good lesson for you. This is a good pattern for you to confess your sins. Take words. Turn to the Lord. Ask Him to receive you graciously. Don't ask Him to receive you fairly. Don't wait two weeks because you're going to be good. Then you're going to confess your sins. Because if you go to the Lord with your goodness and saying, Lord, I've been good for two weeks. Will you forgive me now? Then you're asking for forgiveness based on your goodness. He will not forgive you. Go and say, will you be gracious to me and forgive me in pure mercy? You know what? He will. If you, especially if you give him love letter, love words like this. Asher shall not save us. You are the only defender of the fatherless. Oh, he loves that. Oh, yeah. See, you've been doting on your Assyrian paramours. That's what the Bible calls them. Grown men that are ready for it can read passages. They, they were doting on their Assyrian lovers. And so for them to say, we've broken up with Assyria. You're our God. You're the only one that can take care of our fatherless. He loves those words. His response to a prayer of confession like that, chapter 13 is blotted out by the word of the Lord. Listen to these words. I will heal their backsliding. I will have mercy upon them. I will strengthen them. I will help them. I will overlook their backsliding. I will draw them to me again. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. I have just read to you a couple of the places where he hated them. I will love them freely, meaning not dependent on how good they are. I will love them freely because they gave me a little bit of repentance. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from him. Already? Three verses? (laughs) Don't think you can get away with that with me in three verses. Sorry. I speak as a fool. I hope I would forgive much more quickly than that. But you know what I mean? That's why the Bible says that His mercy and His abundant pardon is higher than the heavens above ours. Because we're not quite so thorough to forgive somebody just in a few minutes. I want to see a little more pain. A little more suffering. I'd like a pound of flesh before I forgive you fully. Not the Lord. Isn't this wonderful? The book ends gloriously. And it always ends gloriously for the righteous who trust in the Lord and confess their sins and repent. It always ends gloriously. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. I'm going to prosper them. I'm going to bless them. They're going to be full of moisture. Instead of dried up and blowing away, they're going to prosper. He shall grow as the lily. Pretty beautiful plant. Pretty beautiful flower. And cast forth his roots as Lebanon. Nobody had cedars like Lebanon. The whole Bible talks about them. His branches shall spread. Big tree. And his beauty shall be as the olive tree. Full of fatness and oil and prosperity and money. Because you've sold olive oil. Remember, we've already had that verse. And his smell is Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Oh, what a beautiful day. Everything is wonderful. Because you did the first three verses. The Lord said, I'll do all this to you. Ephraim shall say, 
What have I to do any more with idols? Look at this. I'm not going to have anything more to do with idols. Look at the way I'm being blessed for repenting. God's answer, I have heard him and observed him. He hears the... Brethren, please follow with me. I'm trying to teach you the Bible. I have heard him. Take with you words. I have observed him. He's turned unto me. Words and change life equal forgiveness. You, for whatever it's worth, if you're able, to un, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Amen. I have heard him and observed him. Here's the Lord. I am like a green fir tree. I'm going to give him shade from the sun and the hot wind. From me is thy fruit found. I'm going to make you fruitful, and it's all from me. I'm going to make you fruitful. Those breasts that wouldn't work? Oh, yes. The womb that wouldn't work? Oh, yes. You're going to have children. You're going to prosper like flocks. My fruit, from me, is thy fruit found. I'm going to bless it and I'm going to cause it. Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Who is prudent? And he'll know these things. For the way of the Lord, the ways of the Lord are right. Everything this book said of Hosea, 14 chapters, is right. God is right to threaten us with the things he threatens us with because look at how merciful he was in the beginning with what he's done for us and how merciful he is in the end when we repent. Amen. And the just shall walk therein. They can walk and have the blessed life. God will walk with them and bless them. Their fruit shall be from him. They'll be like dew upon them. They'll grow like a cedar of Lebanon. But the transgressors shall fall therein and the judgments of these chapters shall fall upon them. And Israel as a nation did not repent, and the judgment fell upon them. Judah did repent, and the judgment was for 70 years, and then God brought them back and gave them a temple that the desire of all nations entered into. And look what he's done for us. If you want to bless your family and your family tree, your marriage and your job, your soul and your health, I give you life and death from Hosea this day in its 14 chapters. If you're wise and prudent, you understand that what I just told you is the truth, that it's right, and that if you'll be just and obey, you'll walk in that good life, and that if you transgress, you'll fall under the judgments of Hosea. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.